Well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, the 14th chapter, page 721 in our church Bibles. We're going to finish up where we left off last time, beginning in verse 32. Mark chapter 14, verse 32, um, page 720, 21 there in the church Bibles. Okay, let's, let's hear the word of the Lord. They went to the place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word today. Let's, if you would, please, let's pray together. Father, we... Thank you for the privilege of public worship. It is just a high privilege to be able to to sing your praise, to pray, to learn together like this. Thank you that you orchestrate all these things and you're the one behind it all, the gift giver, so that all these things are even possible. And so we pray um, because we have needs this morning. We want to thank you for the birth of, of Adric. Uh, to Ben and Erica Bostaff. We thank you that he is well. And we pray that your tender mercy would be on mother and child and father and children. And um, thank you that they're safe and they're warm. We pray that the blessing of Christ would be on that little life. We pray for Mary Fitch that she would be given endurance from heaven as she starts her chemo treatment. Many people here have undergone that. And so they would know how to pray. And so I, I would pray um, that the chemo is effective and the mass will shrink and your mercy will be rich and large and that you'll do for her some unusually gracious things as this um, treatment continues on. And then we want to pray um, for Wendy Hansen's brother, David. And thank you that his surgery went well and he has minimum pain. And so we would pray, as Wendy asked, that he would have a full recovery. And God will meet all of their needs during this time. Judith, Judith as well. And of course, God, right now we have needs. You're kind and you're merciful. And what we sing about is completely undeserved. And we want to thank you because we know, God, that we're not like you. We, we try and hide so much. We can be so cruel 
sometimes our minds are led astray and we think we're so close to perfection when we are so far from it outside of Christ. And we can have many other gods. So please help us now as we study the Bible. Help us in every way known and felt and ways unknown and unfelt in order that every one of your purposes will be accomplished in this room and whoever else will be listening to this sermon. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, if you were with us last time, uh, one of the words we used to guide us through these verses, in fact, it was our first point, was the word distressed. Because in the garden, a few hours before his trial and his crucifixion, we clearly have here a deeply distressed Jesus. You, you saw or you heard the reading. He was broken. He was despondent. This Jesus is filled with anxiety. He can't keep his legs underneath him. Verse 35, Jesus fell, collapsed to the ground underneath the weight of everything that was happening as he prayed. So the posture of a normal prayer for the Jewish person at that time was standing firm, your eyes fixed to heaven. Not here with Jesus. He can't stand, he collapses, and the weight of what is coming is just too much for him. Now, we understand that sometimes people will be uncomfortable with this kind of Jesus. Some people try to escape past this kind of Jesus very quickly. But nonetheless, the gospel record is clear. This is the God-man, Jesus Christ. We also acknowledge that Jesus here was recoiling from the cross. Initially, he, he's drawing himself back. In other words, he wasn't being a bombastic, you know, he-man saying, oh, I can do this, you know, bring it on. It was the opposite. Father, I do not want to do this. Is there another way? And although this kind of behavior was certainly not the norm for Jesus, again, it is still honestly Jesus. Now, because the issue bringing Jesus to this state was human sin, our sin, and the fact that he, although he knew no sin, was going to suffer like no one will ever suffer ever at the hands of God, his Father, on account of our sin, We need to acknowledge why so much of the gospel record is devoted to the final events leading up to and the actual event of the death of Jesus Christ itself. I mean, there's lots of reasons. I wrote down four. One, it reveals to us how wickedly horrible the wages of sin actually is. That's the first thing. Second, how serious God is in dealing with the wages of sin. Third thing, how much love there is from God through his son as he, the son, is going to pay the full penalty of all our sins. And then the fourth one, which I wrote last night actually, is to protect us from forgetting how sinful we are. So, so that the gospels, as you work through them, it will make it really, really hard for us to glory in ourselves And put no confidence in our flesh. At least that's the hope. You see, when we understand better, I would say it like a felt understanding. So we have it here, but we have it here. That we deserve the wrath of God, period. And it's being pictured in some way in the garden and fully at the cross. Because we were unwilling to, if you would, walk over the belly of our own lust. And sometimes we still are. Once we understand that, then the love and the mercy of God not only makes sense, it becomes, it becomes beautiful. Remember we said last time, at the cross, you and I demonstrate how far we will go in our sin. 
And God demonstrates how far he will go for our salvation. So we need to get this in our head. We don't already have it. It's not only the them out there or those bad people over there. I mean, that mindset worries me so much. And it actually bothers me. Because I find that, you know, always pointing to other people outside and all that stuff. I find that mindset delusional with absolutely no self-awareness at all. It's dishonest. It's a bit arrogant. And frankly, it's unattractive. We sing the song here. It was our sin that held Jesus there on the cross. So it's not just them and us. It's me. Excuse me. It is us. It's me. And if you think about it, that alone should humble us more. That's probably one of the reasons why so much of the gospel concentrates on the last week of Jesus' life. To keep us in that mindset. You see, this is the framework of the Bible. God rules this universe by law, his holy law. It's the commandments, it's the words of Christ. These laws perfectly express God's will. God acts according to his will. And as God's creatures, we are each required to do his will, and his will is right, and his will is not unclear. God calls that we live according to what Christ said and what the moral law gives. And God has the authority to impose obligation on us. He calls for our obedience. And he has the authority and right to bind our conscience. And he also has the right then to punish our disobedience when his law is violated. Because we're not autonomous creatures, right? We don't or we shouldn't live under our own law. We're not self-ruled. We are not to live doing what is right only in our own eyes. Rather, we live all under the law of another. And yet, here's the thing. We know that we do not obey that law, not completely. And our incomplete obedience, and frankly, our defiance is the reason why there's a cross, the reason why there is a Gethsemane, and the reason why our righteousness cannot save us. So, Gethsemane is either some sick picture of a narcissistic psychopath or it's true. Because the basic rules of logic dictate that there can be no middle ground here. Either that's real or it's a sick joke. So you know how sometimes when our kids are bad or when we were growing up and we were bad and we just frustrated our mother so much and, you know, she was basically having a breakdown, and, and then dad would come in the room, and, and he would see the mother having her breakdown, and he would say, look what you're doing to your mother. After all she's done for you. Or maybe the reverse, look what you're doing to your father. After all he's done for you. That's some of this. But thank God it's a bit more. Because while it's true, you look at this scene, look what our sin is doing to our Savior. After all he's done for us, we can also say, oh, What love. My God, what love. Look what Jesus is about to say yes to. And then lock yourself into that love. Lock yourself in. We don't deserve it, but take it. Take it with you in every situation you encounter in your pilgrimage on this earth. And this this means amidst all, listen carefully, amidst all the calls for holiness, which, which come from churches and, and pastors and leaders, okay? All calls for holiness. There's still only one kind of man and one kind of woman. A man or a woman who is trapped and in bondage to sin, inherited to by Adam, under the judgment of God, 
and can only be saved by God's grace in Jesus Christ. And therefore, there's only one kind of person, a person who is in need of a righteousness all outside of them and only from Christ. And you see, until we see our sin proper, we'll never see Jesus as our Savior. He'll just be like our coach. He's our mentor. He's my accountant. He's my quality assurance guy. He's my super psychologist. And we will just kind of whittle him down to less than what he is. We each are deeply sinful creatures. This is true. But if we are in Christ, we are redeemed by God. We're given the righteousness of God once and for all. And here's the thing. This Gethsemane scene is the start of all that. Jesus is going to enter into the darkness of human sin. And he is going to enter into God's aggressive, fierce, right judgment on sin. So Jesus is not going to die here as an example. He's not dying as a martyr. But he's dying as our substitute. So that was the first point. We have a distressed Jesus. Um, Then, secondly, if you see the worship folder, we're going to get to our second point. A devoted Jesus. Verse 36, you see it there. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Take this cup from me, Daddy. Right? That's the, the idea of Abba. The cup is the cup of God's wrath. So this request is genuine. This is, again, this is not theater. This is not for effect. This is his cry. Listen carefully. This is the cry of Jesus and the perfection of his humanity in the face of what is before him. Listen to this very, very, very old written commentary. Those who suggest that Jesus didn't mean this are subversive in the very use of language and contradictory to the very letter of the Scripture. And he wrote that because at times people want to run past this saying, well, he had to say that. He was Jesus, you know. But no, if Jesus did not make this request and mean it, then we could never have believed him to be fully and truly human, which is what the Bible said he was. Because, see, this is genuine humanity at its peak, this scene. Uh, By nature, we see all that Jesus is working through as a defect, Not so fast, right? We understand that. We see somebody doing this, and we're like, there's some defect there. But then we see Jesus doing this, and by nature, we want to tag it as a defect. Not so fast. This is a perfect human reaction to sin and its penalty, right? So this this anxiety, this this panic, this this, uh, collapse, Perfect human reaction at its peak to sin and its penalty. So I wrote it like this. This is genuine humanity at its peak, okay, in light of sin and in light of sin's penalty. (laughs) You, You would almost say, I don't know if I should say this. You would almost say, that's how we should react to our sin. Not sure, so don't quote me even though I just said it. But there it is. Genuine humanity at its peak, but also divinity, right? Remember, two natures of Jesus, divinity and humanity in one person, Jesus. And that preserves the integrity then of the words of Jesus Christ that he actually meant, remove this cup. And just very quickly, if you read the Old Testament, you'll know that what Jesus said when he said the cup, that 
imagery was very, very rich in the Old Testament. Here's one example. Psalm 11, verse 6. Let God rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. It just gives you a picture of what the cup means. It's the wrath and punishment of God. So there's lots of pictures of cups in the Bible, but, but this cup is the cup. There won't be another cup, if you would, after this cup. So Jesus is recognizing that in him taking on sin, having placed it in his body, that he who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21, became sin. He is recognizing everything that sin represents is about to be subjected to by him. Listen carefully. Everything that sin represents is about to be subjected to by him, and he is new to this. Right? This is the only time... But it's also the first time that in identifying with us, he stands in front of us for the first time to be engulfed by the holy wrath of God on sin, which is represented in this cup. This is where my my mind went. My wife and I were watching this reality show, and the two people were dating, you know, and they're kind of seeing they're going to like each other, all that kind of stuff. So they're on this African safari because everybody goes on a date and goes on African safari. But anyway, the guy and the girl are in the truck, and here comes this cheetah. And, And she gets scared, and he does the manly thing, and he's like, you know, gets in front of her, and it's like, oh, it's okay, baby. And I, I told my wife, I was like, you know that if that was me, <laughs> I would get behind you, just, just to be clear, you know. <laughs> or maybe tell the guy, get out of there. But anyway, that's the idea. Jesus stands in front of us and absorbs the full wrath of God on our behalf. This is uh, Sinclair Ferguson. We deserve death and hell forever. Jesus took our own liability, and God will crush him at the cross in a phrase Jesus, in the cup, drank our hell, right? So it's becoming more and more acceptable in in many churches who would say, okay, we're orthodox, but we don't want to sing songs about the wrath of God, and we don't want to sing songs about the blood of Christ. And specifically, they say, you know what? You, You focus way too much on the cross, and you have way too much blood in your talk, and the cross really is just like for new Christians, right? And it's a little unbecoming to speak so often about blood and death and all that kind of stuff. And sometimes they use really kind of like contemptuous language and tell us that are in our preoccupation with a bloody gospel that no one wants to hear that. And so they want a bloodless gospel. When the Bible gives us a bloody gospel, Tim Keller, pastor, I'm quoting him. Some want to talk only about God's love and acceptance. Many of them don't like talking about Jesus' death on the cross to take divine wrath and justice. Some even call this divine child abuse. All this might run the risk of falling into the belief in a cheap grace, a non-costly love from a non-holy God who just loves and accepts us. Now, these kinds of people will mention the cross. They'll use kind of like orthodox terms, but they're unwilling to acknowledge that at the cross of Jesus Christ, this is what theologians call this. This is going to be, there's a payoff here, penal substitutionary atonement, okay? Penal substitutionary atonement. This is what it means, that in the cross, there is the punishment of God against sin, and that punishment is justified. That's penal, penalty. It's a justified penalty because sin needs to be um, dealt with. And into that, Jesus himself inserts himself into sin's 
penalty fully according to the will of God the Father as our substitute. Okay, penal, penalty, substitute. Jesus is our substitute if we're in Christ. And he takes all of sin's debt entirely, your past sins, your current sins, your future sins, and he just swallows it up in the cup. Penal, substitutionary, atonement. And the reason why there's a payoff here is that that alone is to be the ground of our stability and our certainty about life and about God and our relationship with God and our relationship with life, about our future, about our past, about what's coming after death. That alone is our stability and our certainty because that act alone is what God required. And that's why there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ because Jesus took it all. And that's why it's kind of disappointing when we speak condemnation on each other in Christ. And I think we understand that. So Jesus, still obeying his Father's will, finds himself in the garden. Verse 36, Father, you can do everything. Take this cup from me. So we said the devotion. Okay, that doesn't sound like devotion. Well, let's play it out. Jesus' devotion is set conditionally, if you would, within the will of God. What Christ wills, I don't want this, is set conditionally in the will of God. That's why Jesus' desire is set within that context because it's a true desire. Take this cup, take it away. That's true. So his, I'll do it, wasn't immediate. And that's okay. Verse 36, yet not my will, but your will. In a phrase, the request of Jesus is not calling into question any of his obedience to God. Now, this is just in passing, but we parents can learn a lot from God our Father. Because what he does, the Father, he lets Jesus talk this out with him at least twice. Verse 39, do you see it there? Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. So it didn't catch, if you would, the first time. There was at least another time. And if you think this through, um, just the logistics of the text, it's almost like Jesus was pacing back and forth between the garden and his disciples at least three times. And he's thinking this through, and he's speaking his mind to his Father. I mean, don't you love that? Does it not serve to authenticate the reality of this and the implications of his death? Jesus is pouring his heart out to his Father, and guess what? It's safe. Psalm 62, 8. Trust in him at all times, people. Pour out your heart to him, for your God is safe. Dad, I don't want to do this. Dad, is there another way? My mind goes right back to my good father, my earthly father. He was so good at this. He, he would take me away from everyone and everything, and he would tell me, Joe, just let it out. Just let it out. He, he knew that I came to him wired to keep it all in. And he could see my little face, and he was so good, he would, and, and it was beautiful. Just let it out. I don't know, we were in the car, McDonald's, somewhere. Let it out. See, that is the heart of the prayer. Okay, I need time to get to that point. Not what I will, but what you will. And it took Jesus time to get there. And the Father gave him time. Jesus is completely devoted to the will of the Father. And it is his obedience which prevails over his personal desire. But again, it takes time. 
Now, you can apply that in many ways. I chose to apply it this way. There was a missionary named Hudson Taylor. He was the founder of the Chinese Inland Mission. He was in love with a girl named Margaret, and he wanted Margaret to be his wife. Margaret asked her dad. That's what they did at that time, and her dad said, no, I want you here with us, and I don't want you in China with him. They never married. She said no to Hudson, and she said yes to her dad. And her obedience to her dad denied Hudson her hand. Now, I am not sure if your heart has ever been broken that way, but I imagine that was awful for Hudson, to to love a woman that much that you, you prepared to spend the rest of your life with her, and you can't. Your will, I want to be with her forever. The divine will, you can't. You see, we all have desires, and I imagine most of our desires are good. And we may come to a point in our life, clearly not in the depth of the garden here, but nonetheless, it's big for us because we're human. And we want God to do something, but at the end of the day, after we have honestly poured out our heart to him, as our Father, in our prayers, in Christ's name, all of which is important, we have to say, not what I will, God, but your will be done. And in most cases, God's will is, is perfectly clear. I'll leave that for you to think on. J. Alexander, though Jesus really desired as a man to be delivered from the wrath of God, yet even as a man, he finally consented to endure it as the only means by which to save his people from their sins. Right? The only way people can be saved from their sins is this way. And he did it. So it was as a man, Jesus desired not to experience the cross. It was as a man He's honestly living this out. As a man, he recoiled from the cross at first. No bravado at all as a man. And as a man, he submitted to the cross. Humanity and divinity, two whole, perfect and distinct natures, godhood, manhood, inseparably joined together, right? Well, this is not, there's no flipping off and on to divinity and humanity. No, conver- no conversion, uh, composition, or confusion. Therefore, Christ is more than man, certainly, but he's not less than man. So this scene is not a clash of wills. It's just an honest conversation. It's a keen awareness of what the cup actually means. Divine wrath. And yet, total trust in God, his Father. You know the song that we sing often here? It's so beautiful. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son, to make a wretch his treasure. But the son gave himself too, right? Voluntarily, he says yes to this. The father, the son, and the spirit working together. No strong arming here. No bullying to get your way. The son isn't trying to calm the father down and take him down a different route. John Stott, it is true that the father gave the son, but it is equally true that the son gave himself. I, oh, I hope I get this right. It just comes to mind. In Hebrews 10, it quotes from Psalm. I can't remember the Psalm, but Hebrews 10 says, Here I am, O God. I've come to do your will. And that's Jesus speaking to God the Father. Here I am. I've come to do your will. And of course, that offends human pride. That we even need this kind of thing at all. 
But it demonstrates that, and this is important, remember penal substitutionary atonement? It demonstrates that all our stability now and forever is not ultimately in us. That all our righteousness is not in us. All that we speak about of future hope and safety and preservation and security is not in us. And all we will ever know of success and achievement is not in us. That any good that we may do on behalf of Christ is not in us. But it is in Christ. Now here's the difference. Because there's always a brand of Christianity which comes and says, no, no, it is all about us. It's up to us. You need to push harder, drag yourself away from the cross, and keep, keep, you know, keep yourself in that frame of mind. It's up to you, it's up to you, it's up to you, it's up to you. That's a dark kingdom. That's a dark kingdom which says God will love you and bless you more with all kinds of things. Even the things of time because you're willing to pull yourself together and you're living a good, disciplined, moral, frugal life. You won. You're a winner. Good for you. It makes me sick. It makes me sick. If you think about it, we couldn't even have the privilege to wrestle in prayer with the will of God and know that we are being heard if Jesus did not say, Father, not my will, but your will be done and go to the cross. I mean, we, we still need this scene like the rest of all humanity. Okay. So we see Jesus distressed. We see him devoted. Finally, we see him disappointed. No real surprise here, right? Luther writes this. We see Jesus seeking comfort on those he has many times comforted. So he takes Peter, James, and John further than the rest. He asks them at that point, to watch. This is Mark's perspective, right? We're not going to talk about prayer. Just watch me. They do not. Verse 37, then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. So if you know your Bible, you know that Luke tells us that an angel came to help Jesus. But do you remember after the angel left what Luke wrote? This is after the angel left to give comfort to Jesus and being in greater anguish he prayed more earnestly. So the angel helped partially, but not fully. The three found asleep only compounds Jesus' loneliness here. Because once again, we find that in the best of men, you could almost say it after me, men are best. Best of men are men at best. So Jesus addresses Peter. Simon, verse 37, and whenever Peter calls or whenever Jesus calls Peter by his old name, Simon, it's meant to humble him. Because that was his old name, his kind of like wobbly name. Remember, his old nature name. Peter was his new name. It was Rock, Rocky. But Jesus says, hey, wobbly. You, know, you couldn't even stay awake and watch over me for an hour? Just an hour, Peter? Verse 38, watch and pray, Peter, so you won't fall into temptation. Many of us know that Peter will not pray at all. And Peter will fall, won't he? Jesus will pray. And Jesus will not fall. Listen to Eugene Peterson's paraphrase on verse 38. Stay alert. Be in prayer. So you don't enter the danger zone without even knowing it. Don't be naive. Part of you is eager, ready for anything in God, but another part is, is as lazy as an old dog sleeping by the father. fire. <laughs> That's a paraphrase, right? But it helps. The spirit, you see it there? The spirit is willing, Jesus says, 
The flesh is weak. And loved ones, we need to understand that what Jesus said there, that will always be true for all of us as long as we're in this body. I mean, in the Greek, it's, you ready? It's present, middle, indicative. I mean, this is indicative of everyone that's within the presence of that phrase. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So it's always going to be true for all of us as long as we're, as long as we're in this body. Now, I thought about this, and I thought, you know what? That's probably one of the reasons why when you say the Lord's Prayer, some of it is so basic, right? Because it teaches us that the things that we think are so weak, we need daily to ask. So we need to ask God daily for our food, right? Give us this day our daily bread. And in the mind of Christ, we need to ask for it daily. And we need to ask God daily to forgive us. And we need to ask God daily to help us extend forgiveness to others. And you ready? We need to ask God daily to protect us from the evil one and evil people and the evil in ourselves. That's how weak we are. Daily. So Jesus, is on the one hand, he commends them. I know on one level, you guys, you want to do the right thing. But you're going to have to face the fact that in your flesh, you're not strong. You're weak. This is Romans 5. You can read that for homework. This is the infection that Romans 5 speaks of. It's in every one of us. And how encouraging, I was thinking, how encouraging it would be for those who had to die for the sake of Jesus Christ who were not in their flesh very brave, right? So they didn't make the cut to be in the fox's book of martyrs, right? That their, their spirit was willing, but their flesh was weak, and you had to drag them in tears to their martyrdom. In other words, they didn't run to death very bravely. And how encouraging it is for those of us who run away from trouble a bit quicker than the rest. And there's an application here. Do you see it? Watch and pray, West Coast Chapel. Or we may, too, fall into temptation. The temptation of doubting his word. The temptation of, of doubting his gospel. Of doubting his gospel mission. Of disowning Jesus. And, and denying Jesus. Oh, we could never disown and deny Jesus. You idiot. We could never deny Jesus. And you're like, well, now you sound like Peter. Because Peter thought the same thing. And Peter didn't pray. And we know what happened to pray, Peter. When we pray, we acknowledge at least three things. One, we acknowledge our weakness. We ask God because we can't do for ourselves what is needed. Two, we acknowledge God's goodness and strength in every circumstance that God can do it. Three, we acknowledge that Jesus had to die in order that we would have such access to God. That's why when we pray, we tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help us, God. Don't be disappointed in me, but do you pray? Do do you pray? Luke is kind. He writes, the disciples were overwhelmed by sorrow at this point. Mark says, verse 40, their eyes were heavy. We understand that. John writes nothing at all. But here's the deal. This is why Jesus is disappointed. When he needed them the most, they weren't there. Just when he needed their friendship, they never showed up. Just when he needed to borrow some strength from them, they gave him none. Very human, but still very disappointing. 
If I told you the name Randy Van Warner, I'd be surprised if you know the name, but I bet, I bet you know his song. This is one line. You left me just when I needed you most, right? But I missed you more than I missed you before, and now we're off in comfort. God only knows because you left me just when I needed you most. Do you know why he wrote the song? Two reasons. One, he was on a Denver highway and his car broke down. Two, around the same time, his girlfriend left him. Just when he needed her. Two applications and we're going to be done. Can you imagine the worst situation a person can ever be on on this planet? And you had to substitute your life for theirs all the way until your death? So let's say they're incredibly wicked, incredibly destitute, they're grumpy, they're rude, they have all kinds of of afflictions and addictions, and you had to jump into their life, and you had to stay there, and you have to give them your life forever. That is what is taking place on the smallest of scales with Jesus on the cross, and these events in Gethsemane is beginning that divine transfer. Our wickedness for his righteousness Forever. Forever. Romans 11, oh, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How searchable are his judgments, his path beyond tracing out. Who has ever known the mind of the Lord and who has ever been his counselor? Peter tried to do that. Don't say that stuff, Jesus, about the cross. Zip it. But he was wrong. That's the first thing. Second thing is oftentimes you you hear church don't fall asleep. Church don't fall asleep. But you know where I find encouragement here? The disciples fell asleep. They fell asleep. But all we see in this scene is love. He loves the disciples. He doesn't say, well, guys, you know, I was planning on getting rid of you anyway, right? I lost one guy the other day. I'm going to lose another here in just a minute. He's going to make a hash of it. So you know what? Let's part ways now, and when I rise from the dead, I'm going to pick a whole new ministry team. They're going to be a bit stronger. They're going to be more reliable, more serious, more energy. (laughs) But he doesn't do that. And if he did do that, where would I be? Where would you be? Unless we never denied Jesus, and we never uh, doubted Jesus, and we've never fallen asleep in our work. But in the words of Jesus Christ, and you see it there, verse 40, 41, 42, there's no, there's no bitterness, really. There's just sadness. It was his big moment. It was really, really scary. He needed his friends. But his friends didn't show up. Verse 43, rise, wake up, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Let's pray together. Jesus, we give glory to your name and we praise you for such obedience, for such honesty, for the depth of your conviction, for the reality of what was coming to you and the fact that you endured it so perfectly. The garden was dark in many ways, and yet the light of your Father shining brilliantly. This is honest humanity, and we thank you that you did everything right. 
Because if you did not do everything right, we would have no hope. And now because of you, all we know is hope. And we praise you for this. Amen.